I invite you to turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm number 77, page 619, 619 in the Pew Bible. This will be our text this morning. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever? And never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, The deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea. Your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So far, our text, in response to the preaching, we'll sing from Psalm 77. We'll sing the stanzas 5, 6, and 7. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the month of November, though we've had a pretty good beginning to the month, it's turning gray. That's pretty typical for the month of November, isn't it? A gray month, typically a cold month, a dark month. There's something bleak about November. The trees are stripped bare, the the daylight hours get shorter. Nature is shutting down. Summer is far behind us, and only winter lies in front of us. 
And for some, all of this together can bring on feelings of sadness. It can bring out the blues. November is known for this, so much so that it has become a metaphor, a metaphor for these depressing emotions. For example, Herman Melville in that famous book, Moby Dick, wrote about one character experiencing a damp, drizzly November in his soul, a damp, drizzly November in his soul. Have you ever felt a damp, drizzly November in your soul. All kinds of things can bring that on, not just time of the year. Things like loss can trigger it, loss of a job, loss of sleep night after night, loss of your reputation, loss of meaningful relationships, loss of a friend or a family member. It could even be the loss of things that you were expecting to have, the vanishing of expectations. You, you may be expected to be doing a particular thing with your life at, at this moment, but that thing never materialized. You may have expected a certain kind of marriage or to raise children to be a certain way, but it didn't go that way. You expected life to follow a, a particular pattern and that you would experience in that pattern joy and satisfaction along the way, but it turns out you've had disappointment after disappointment, and you find that bitterness and frustration and anger are creeping in to your thoughts. You have a drizzly November in your soul. Well, when that comes upon us, what do we do? Where do we go with those feelings? Where do we go when we feel like we're sinking beneath the waves? Well, the Lord says in Psalm 77, come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest and comfort in your distress. That'll be our theme this morning as I give you, preach to you this Word of God. In my distress, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. We'll look at two things, dealing with my distress and healing in my distress. Well, the writer of Psalm 77, Asaph, he knows all about affliction and suffering and loss. Asaph's written a number of psalms, and you can find those elements in those earlier psalms. For example, Psalm 73. We looked at that briefly a few weeks ago in connection with the Ten Commandments. Well, in that psalm in 73, Asaph is overwhelmed by the problem of a suffering child of God who's, who's righteous and trying to live a righteous life. That person is suffering. Meanwhile, the wicked get off scot-free and live a prosperous life. Asaph in that psalm admits, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps they had nearly slipped, for I was envious. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
So this Asaph of Psalm 77 has absolutely known doubts and questions and great frustration when things in his life didn't match his expectations. And one of the things about Asaph, and, and you can see that in the prophecy of Habakkuk 2, particularly chapters 1 and 2, and we need to pick up on this, is that we, like the authors of, of the Psalms, we ought not to hesitate to ask questions of God, the tough questions. Asaph does not hesitate to express his feelings, the difficult feelings, the challenging emotions that tend to rock faith and shake the soul. He does it here in Psalm 77 too. In this psalm, he's no longer perplexed about the problem of evil and evil people prospering, but here he's having a hard time dealing with the fact that God does not seem to answer his prayers for help. So Asaph is in a jam. He's been calling out to God. Nothing comes. That's his problem. And Asaph is really in a bad way. We don't know precisely what kind of trouble that he's facing. That's true for so many psalms. But it's clearly something that's oppressing him greatly. It brings him down to a very dark and dreary place. You sense it that suffering and the urgency in verse 1, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and He will hear me. In the original, it's very terse. My voice unto God, my voice unto God. It's a, a picture of a, a desperate man calling out repeatedly to his God, and he's going under the waves of despair. And yet, where does he go with his distress? He goes to his God in prayer. In other words, he goes to the right address. Though he, his heart is heavy with grief because of his troubles and unanswered prayers, yet he doesn't stop praying. No, he doubles down on his prayers. He, he presses on in, in prayer. He believes, he knows that only the Lord, there is no other possible help, only the Lord can give him the aid that he needs. So he goes back to the Lord. That's what we need to do, too. When that drizzly November takes over your soul, takes over my soul, are we going to the right address? If your grief or even your frustration has so overtaken you and you feel kind of numb and frozen, then brothers and sisters, let the, the gospel of Psalm 77 prompt you out of that numbness to return to your God in prayer. And return again and go again. This psalm and so many psalms, they are biblical permission. They are divine permission for us to take our troubles to the Lord and, and let it all out. Don't put a lid on your emotions. Don't, don't check your feelings at the door before you fall on your knees. Don't stiffen your upper lip and then go to God in prayer and pretend before God that everything's okay. That's not what the Lord wants. He sees the struggles of your heart. 
He wants you, He wants me to go to Him and pour out our hearts. Psalm 62, verse 8, pour out your heart before the Lord. So, beloved, take all your feelings, take all your questions, all your struggles, and lay them out before the throne of grace. Do it with your spouse, if you can, or maybe with your children, or maybe you just need to do it on your own in your bedroom by yourself. Either way, take your troubles to the Lord. And this isn't just Asaph's peculiar habit. In the Gospels, we find the Lord Jesus doing the same. He's often busy in prayer. He often goes off by himself to pray. And the book of Hebrews gives us a deeper insight into what Jesus was doing in those prayers. Hebrews 5, in the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Here it comes, with loud cries and tears. He's praying to His Father with loud cries and with tears streaming down His face to Him who was able to save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverence. Jesus came with all sorts of emotion, all sorts of heartache to His Father in prayer. You can hear it, for example, in the Garden of Gethsemane, that prayer that Jesus offers, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Sweat like drops of blood pouring out of Him. It's there again on the cross in pain and anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So be assured, beloved, that with our Father in heaven, you never need to button your lip. You need rather to lay bare your heart of all your woes and all your troubles. Even that particular trouble of feeling uncomforted, of feeling that God is not listening, even though you've been praying. You ever experienced that? That you've brought your strife to the Lord in prayer. You, you brought your sorrows. But you haven't received any relief yet from God. Then that in itself, this, this unanswered prayer, becomes an added burden because the original sorrow is now compounded by the feeling that God is not answering, that God does not care, that God does not hear, that He's not doing anything for you. And when that happens, that, that November in your soul can become even darker yet. A sincere child of the Lord can experience this. Asaph Himself did. He describes it in verse 2. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. He describes the night. The pain and suffering is always the worst at night, isn't it? There was Asaph, he says, with his hands stretched out in prayer. That was very typical for the, the Jewish people to pray with outstretched hands. He's doing it the whole night long, but his soul just can't be comforted somehow. He couldn't find the solace, no matter how hard he tried to look. 
And I imagine that some of us know exactly what Asaph was talking about. Maybe you've done it too. Cried out to God for help in the middle of the night. But afterward, the night is still dark as it ever was. And the hurt as raw as at first. Asaph explains something of why his grief stays with him even after much prayer. Verse 3, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. That seems strange at first. I remember you, O God. I think about you, O God, and I start moaning. Somehow, recalling the Lord to mind doesn't lead to Asaph's peace, but it leads to more turmoil inside. He groans. Why? Well, it seems that Asaph is comparing his past circumstances, which the Lord had given him in a different time, situation of of prosperity and, and blessing with what's going on now, and that leads him to moan and become weary. He thinks of how good he once had it under God's blessing. He thinks about how things used to go so well. And then all of a sudden, the bottom dropped out of his life, and and it feels like everything's just spilled out like water on the ground, and there's almost nothing left of what there once was down the drain. He went from a, a, a contented, happy life to something sad and miserable. He went from a full life to a a, a life that's full of grief. His circumstances seem so irreversible, and he refuses to be comforted because what he once had will, will never be that way again. And Asaph wasn't the only one to have this intensity of struggle. You can think of Jacob, whom Asaph mentions in verse 15 of the psalm. You remember Jacob had a lot of struggles along the way, but there was one particularly grievous one. In his older age, Father Jacob was sitting in his tent, and his, his ten sons come home from watching the sheep. Ten, ten of his twelve sons come home. The twelfth son was already at home, but where was number eleven? Where was Joseph, the apple of his eye, who was supposed to be with the ten? The brothers hold out to Jacob that coat of many colors which Jacob had given Joseph many years before, and that that coat is, is soaked with blood, and Jacob connected the dots. Joseph had been killed by an animal. Jacob's grief was instantaneous, his despair immense, and then the Bible says that even after a long period of mourning, Genesis 37, Jacob refused to be comforted. That means he couldn't see how life could be happy anymore if Joseph wasn't there. He would take his mourning with him all the way to the grave. That's how bad it can be for a child of the Lord. It can hound you, this grief and sorrow day and night. Asaph says in verse 4, you hold, you Lord, you hold my eyelids open. That means the Lord withheld sleep 
from Asaph in his oppression. He was sleepless in Judea, and I guess that more than a few of us know something of that experience. Some of us, the younger parents, are pacing the floor these days with unsettled babies, night after night, sleepless. Or maybe you're actually able to lie down on your bed, but no sleep comes. You close your eyes, but all you can see in your mind's eye is that that person you once loved or the loss that afflicts you, and your soul too refuses to be comforted. Like a wound that continues to bleed, even though it's been bandaged, sorrow and, and pain, they just keep leaking out of your heart. Well, brothers and sisters, Psalm 77 is evidence that your covenant God gets all that and more. Your Lord understands your hurt, your pain, your, your anguish of heart. He understands the confusion and the frustration that you feel, your anger and your questions. This belongs to, to our human condition of brokenness. You know, we don't always and we don't even often see things as God sees them. Our normal experience is to, to see things from our limited human perspective. And God understands our limitations full well. He knows, Psalm 103, He knows that we are dust. He knows that our days are limited. He knows that our minds are finite. So He doesn't want you and me to set aside those feelings or, or those troubles. He doesn't expect us to somehow ignore them or, or to somehow tough it out in our own strength. No. He wants you, He wants me to walk through the difficulties with Him. He wants us to do what Asaph did, what the Lord Jesus did in order to get out of the quagmire of our distress, and that is take our troubles, lay them out before the Lord, all of them, express yourself and inquire of the Lord as Asaph did, verse 7, will the Lord spurn me forever? Will the Lord never again be favorable? This is going to the right address with all of our tumult. This is what it means to lean on God in our troubles. And when we do that, He promises to begin His healing work in us. For Asaph does experience God's healing touch. There's a shift that starts in, verses, in verse 7. And in the verses 7 through 9, Asaph turns his attention directly to the Lord. He does so with a series of questions. Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are His promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has God in anger shut up His compassion? It's, it's a shift because in the first six verses, Asaph himself is the subject of most of the sentences. You find in those first six verses a lot of I. 
I cry aloud to God in the day of my trouble. When I meditate, my spirit faints, and so on and so forth. The first verses, Asaph is looking within. He's examining what his feelings are all about. And that's necessary, but you can't stop there. He goes on to seek the Lord. And this is where we can sometimes miss the boat. Where we do what Asaph does, we, we take stock of our feelings, but we can't get out of our feelings. We can't get past ourselves. That can be a problem. Particularly when we are told by the world around us that to find answers for your struggles, you, you need to search within. You need to dig a little deeper inside of yourself and find that inner reserve of human power. And when you find it, it will rise to the surface and it will carry you through. we see through that lie, don't we? I mean, just think about it. When you see or when you experience irreversible loss, when you stand at the, at the graveside and lower a body into the earth, isn't that stone-cold proof that we don't have any power to save ourselves or to save those that we love? We are powerless. There isn't power within us to save. So, it is good to take stock of the feelings of our hearts and, and to pour them out before the Lord as Asaph does. But Asaph also makes it clear that when, when you focus on your heart and analyze what's going on there, then all that you find inside of us is distress. You don't find a source of human power. When you look at your heart, all you've got is hurt, just a giant heartache. And we, we must not get stuck there, otherwise we're going to go around in circles of despair. So God gives us Psalm 77 to get us unstuck. The place to look is not inside ultimately, but outside to the Lord. He's got the answers. And that's what those questions in verses 7 through 9 are teaching us and, and helping us to do. To each of those rhetorical questions, there's only one answer. First question, will the Lord re reject or spurn us forever? No. Will He never show His favor again? Of course not. Has God's steadfast love forever ceased? Only if God could cease to be God could He somehow shut off the tap of His love. No way is His love gone forever. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Only if the Father could erase the memory of His only begotten Son could the Father ever forget to be gracious. The answer is no to all these questions. God Himself is merciful. God is love. God will not chide us forever. Asaph, he looks outside of himself to his unchanging God. And then the, the clouds of November start to break up above him. I know that my God will not let me stay in this depressive state forever. My covenant Father will not let me be in this misery, will not allow me to lie in my fragmented life uncomforted. 
He will not leave my wounds untended. He will not leave my heart broken. He will not leave me without consolation. He cannot do that. It's not His nature. It's not in our God to do that for His people. So my God will as yet come to me with help and relief because that's what my God promises and that's what my God does. He is that God. Asaph is finding the gospel again. And these sentiments are not just pious, pious wishes that he throws up into the sky. No, Asaph knows them from history. He remembers the facts of the past, the mighty deeds of the Lord, which actually prove and guarantee the kind of God He is. And that's the direction we need to go in our troubles beloved, to find healing, we go to the wonders and the miracles and the deeds of our God. That's what Asaph does in verse 10. I will appeal to this. I will appeal to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. And those wonders of old are quite something, aren't they? If you think about them, we should think about them. Asaph, he goes back to the great work of redemption that God worked in Egypt, verse 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Your way was through the sea. Asaph's thoughts go back to the Red Sea. You remember that? You recall how Pharaoh's vast army had this nation of slaves, the Israelites, cornered on the shores of the Red Sea. They were boxed in, nowhere to go. They, they were, these were people without a human hope in the world. It was either go back with the Egyptians into slavery or be killed right there on the shores of the sea. You talk about depths of sadness. You talk about despair. Absolutely no doors were open for the Israelites and no windows either. They were groaning in their misery. They, there was no chance, no route for escape. God, yes, He had freed them from Egypt, but they were goners in the desert. That's what it looked like. And then, and then the waters writhed, says Asaph. At God's command, you know the story, Moses extended his rod over the sea, the Red Sea, and those mighty waters, they parted so that one wall stood on the left and one wall stood on the right. This is what God did for His people. He created a way where there was no way. Now, does this, brothers and sisters, does this sound like a God who is unable to enter your house or my house? Your home or my home, your family or my family, your life or my life, and not bring solutions and help in our problems? Remember the deeds of the Lord, because He's your God still today, same God. That's what Asaph wants to get across. 
the God who can do such things is the God who has pledged Himself on oath to be your covenant God and mine, to be our helper in trouble, to be our redeemer and deliverer and agent of relief in the day of calamity. And this God's hand is not shortened, nor is His love or mercy or compassion ever far from us. We might feel like it is sometimes, but in reality it is not. The Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea thought for a moment, where is God? And then God showed up. He was there, but He showed His hand and showed His power. You know, there's this saying in the world of stocks and bonds, maybe you've seen it in the small print at the bottom of some mutual fund flyer, a little asterisk at the bottom, it says something like, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future performance. Past performance, not necessarily indicative of the future performance of this stock. They spend the whole flyer, right, trying to convince you, the potential customer, that past performance does actually indicate what the stock will do in the future, but then in this little footnote on the bottom, they kind of take that away. After all, they know that no human can predict the future, and they don't want to be held liable. But our God can predict the future, and our God does not take away His guarantee in a footnote at the bottom. He insists, in fact, on being held fully accountable for His promises because He plans the future. He guides the future. He lays out the future. Try me, He says. God's one constant message in the Bible is, is this, my past performance not only indicates my future performance, but guess what? It guarantees it. Look at my track record, my people. I am the same yesterday and today and forever. In your distress, ask your questions of me. Cry out to me. Work through your distress. But then come further and work through my historical record, says the Lord. Look past your distress to my success. Ask yourself if I've ever failed in any one of my promises. Look at all that I've done. I've got a whole history here for you. Look at all that I've done for my people and see if my mercy has not outshone my wrath. See if my love has not carried them along even through periods where they were judged righteously. Tell me if I have not come through for my people and given them even more than I promised. And then says the Lord to us, I want you to especially take a long, long look at my son, my only begotten son, Jesus. You want a guarantee that my help will come to you? Jesus is the guarantee the perfect guarantee of my future love, my future faithfulness for you. I sent Him 
to work your great exodus from slavery to sin. And on this, my beloved Son, I poured out my wrath so that I will always remember you in mercy. On Jesus, I unleashed my lightning bolts of anger so that His soul was oppressed to death. I did that to Him so that I could lead you quietly and carefully on dry ground to the other side of that sea in safety. Do you think that I did all of that to my precious son just to now leave you in your grief, in your misery, in your despair, in your trouble? Brothers and sisters, take heart. Take heart. Your God is your loving shepherd who will never leave you. He will never leave you even if you don't see His footprints. Verse 19 of our psalm mentions that God led the Israelites through the Red Sea. So God was out there in front of the people. And then Asaph says, though your footprints were not seen. We often wonder where God is in the moment of trouble. We sometimes have the impression that we are all alone. We have to go it alone. But lo and behold, we discover the Lord moves out in front of us with invisible footprints. He does not push us out the door and say, you're on your own. No, He's out in front, gently leading us. Whatever place we come to in our suffering, we may know that the Lord has gone there first. He's out front leading the way through those mighty waters. And let's notice how the psalm ends. It might appear to be a bit anticlimactic after all that talk of waters churning and waters writhing and thunders in the whirlwind. All of a sudden it gets real quiet. But isn't that exactly what Asaph needed? Isn't that exactly what we need? We started the psalm in inner turmoil of soul with all kinds of things churning in our hearts. We were full of tumultuous self-expression, wondering where God was in all our suffering. But at the end of the psalm, we clearly see the Lord in front of us, leading us quietly along. And then the psalm ends this way. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God was leading the flock through those ordinary men, Moses and Aaron. And you can tell Asaph's spirit has found renewed peace. So with us, our souls can find renewed tranquility. For the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd, is leading us too like a flock. We are His flock. Jesus is not a God who has gone to heaven and now forgets us or somehow abandons us. He leads us surely, steadfastly, by the 
by the hands of ordinary men, deacons, elders, a pastor. There the Lord Jesus is leading us through the desert of this life into the promised land. And you know, by the end of Psalm 77, Asaph, Asaph has no particular knowledge of when his sorrow will be over. He's not out of the, the trouble yet. Like Habakkuk, he ends his book, as he ends his book, Asaph is in the midst of his distress, but something has changed in his perspective. Something has changed in his heart. He now has hope again. He has comfort again. He has peace again. The drizzly November of his soul, it's become a bright spring May day. The Lord doesn't instantly erase our distress, but He does strengthen us to walk through our hand in His. That's what Asaph gained by leaning on the Lord and remembering the Lord's mighty deeds. And that's what we will gain when we do likewise. A healing touch from above, a helping hand as our good shepherd leads us forward with unseen footprints. Amen.